Hello, Brandon. Hey, Tom. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. So, as promised, we received a listener email. One of the great things about having podcasting feeds is, you know, if you put it out there, someone's going to email you. And it was actually quite a pleasant email from listener Sean in the UK. And he said, Hi, the figures you were talking about are made by a Japanese company called Dragon. I have a friend who collected them. Think they've been around at least 15 years. The early ones used to sell for crazy money. My friend's flat was full of them at one point. We have a local shop that sells them, and the owner is the most unfriendly person you could ever meet. I only visited the shop once. Sean in the UK. I love it. Yes. <laughs> Sean and I have been in periodic communication for many years now. He's a long-time podcast listener. I think he might have even heard you when you turned up a model rail radio in 2010, I think. Oh, sure, sure. So he, I believe he works for the UK postal system. So he works in the late evenings doing something associated with the mail, I'm assuming. And he's a, yeah, he just has a lot of time to listen to podcasts. So long time fan. Ah, good. Thanks for listening. Sean and I also have a very curious hobby or curious interest. Which I only came to, you and I think we were born in the same year, so we both turned 40 last year. And when I turned 40, I thought, what kind of, as we were talking last recording actually, like, what kind of gift can I get for myself? Like, what's a strange kind of gift? And I spent a bit of time on YouTube, and somehow had stumbled across, you may not have heard of this, but there are people that buy army rations from all over the world. <laughs> I thought, this is just like a crazy thing. So I went on eBay and bought some Vietnam-era army rations that were more than 40 years old. And I thought, this is just nuts. So anyway, they arrived here. Oh. And I thought, well, I've got to eat them now. They've arrived, right? So I kind of chickened out. I chickened out on the coffee. The coffee and the condensed milk and the sugar and this kind of stuff was all a bit much. The toilet paper was really extreme, and I just kind of left it there. But I did try the chewing gum. And the chewing gum was actually quite good after 40-plus years. It basically held its flavor for about 10 minutes. It was a little bit cardboardy, but aside from that, it was fine. And the interesting thing with this ration pack is it also came with some Marlboro cigarettes. They all did. Oh, Some had Newports and some had Marlboro, and there was another cigarette, I think maybe Mayfair, where the Mayfairs are particularly collectors. So Sean collects Vietnam-era stuff. And he asked me for the cigarettes. But I absolutely hate going to the post office here. The UK post office are completely different. They're really efficient and very polite. And they make the US post office. I mean, some US post offices are okay. But I still have the cigarettes that I've got to send to Sean. So. <laughs> that's, uh, that's interesting you said bubblegum. Because um, a friend of mine, he would use his paper route money to invest in these. Um, this is going back when we were like 14. But he would buy these Tops hockey cards, mm. uh, and they were oh twenty dollars a pack, and then that was I mean that's still a lot for a pack of cards, but they were nineteen seventy eight seventy nine, and he would bank on these certain cards that were he would sell back, but he would get the gum, and his mom would drive us, and on the way home he would he would open these cards and eat the gum. That was like the first thing he would do is eat this gum from like 1978, 79. And so I ate a piece one time and it was disgusting. It all, it, it never stuck together. It just mm. became little crunchy, like, like almost like razzles or something. Yeah. <laughs> it was hideous. A curious factoid about that particular gum, even though baseball cards were imported in Australia, the gum itself was actually illegal. So when I first came to the US, they'd actually forcibly at the docks remove all the gum. My suspicion is it was probably a way that they could get the valuable baseball cards as well. Like it was just a ruse like, oh, this gum's illegal. So we're going to, you know, rummage through the baseball cards and get the best ones out for ourselves. So when I first came to the US in 1990, one of the first things I did was go to like a 7-Eleven and buy, I don't know, I didn't keep the cards. I was interested in gum. Yeah. It's illicit gum. And I suspect it was because of the red food colouring or there's something really crazy. But Australia always has these strange laws associated with these kind of things. But the gum itself is like an illicit delicacy for Australians. <laughs> That's great. So uh, back to the Vietnam rations, mm -hmm. you, you, do you still have this stuff? I have some of it, actually. I mean, I've got the cigarettes that I'm saving, the toilet paper and stuff. The matches are really fascinating as well. I think I bought maybe two or three packs 
because I thought I'd keep a couple of unopened. I'm not sure if I still have one unopened, but I opened at least, well, I must have opened three because I've got the three packs of cigarettes. And yeah, I ate the gum from each of them. The coffee, I came, like I put water in it and kind of sniffed it. I mean, that kind of stuff potentially could kill you very quickly. And like the milk and stuff, I thought the gum is something like what can be in gum? I mean, it has yeah. to be edible at some stage. But the coffee and the milk and the sugar, I mean, the sugar's solid. So, you know, but yeah, yeah. I, I still, are you interested in some of the stuff? I can send some to you too, if you're interested. No, I'm just curious about, the, you know, who, who sells it and where's it come oh, from? It comes, and I think like everything, people hoard stuff. And my suspicion is that there are hoarders out there or, you know, when they pass away, obviously, from smoking the cigarettes, what have you. There are hoarders that their collections are found. I think I spent about $20 a ration packet, and they have a whole scale online. The ones with the cigarettes are particularly sought after because they're collectors of the cigarettes independently, like Sean. But, um, yeah, it was quite an inch. I mean, it was a very easy process. It was just a purchase on eBay, basically. Um, but you can go back... Like some of the strange, I watched a few of the YouTube things. This was only in an evening. I didn't spend too much time on this thing, but the Italian rations are particularly good. And the Japanese rations are particularly good. Like the Italian rations have like wine and things. In them as well. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, of course, just, right? like, you know, they, they weren't there fighting the war. They were there to eat basically, but it was fascinating stuff because each of the countries has their own interpretation. And obviously, I mean, amongst the kind of, survivalist and libertarian communities here. I mean, people buy rations still for, you know, the coming apocalypse and obviously the zombies oh, yeah. and kind of thing. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, apparently it's a community. But, yeah, the one channel I found, I don't know, he had like 50 different rations that he had gone through in his quote-unquote reviews. He actually got one from the Second World War, which was pretty fascinating, and he eats them on his videos. Oh. So, yeah, it's just, I was in, it, when you mentioned the eight millimeter stuff last recording, I basically use YouTube like that. Yeah. I mean, okay. YouTube for me is just a means of seeing into people's lives that just lead really strange and curious lives. And <laughs> you can put any topic into YouTube and you will find like 50 super obsessed people in their particular areas. And, oh, yeah, yeah. You can spend a lifetime on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> so, so those rations, do they come in like a specific package or is yeah, it just so like these, a these are, these are specific rations. I think they were designed and I, I have a few friends that were Vietnam veterans. There are many reasons that I bought the Vietnam rations. One of them was that my parents met at a Bob Dylan concert. They were both anti-war activists. So I feel my origin is irreversibly connected with the Vietnam War. So I know a number of people who went to Vietnam, a number of veterans in the US, I kind of cultivate them in part through model rail radio. I know a guy who was actually a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Fascinating, fascinating fellow. So they, these are the rations that I guess when they go out on their troop movements, they get maybe 10 of these or, you know, one per squad member, basically. So they're really flat in plastic. The plastic's pretty good. I mean, obviously they remain airtight for this period of time, but they're really not like, they're not like cans or you know, ammo cans or tins that have to be opened. They're just literally like air seal plastic. Um, yeah. Okay. The little rip that comes with it. And that's probably why I picked it up for $20. The ones that are actually in cans, you know, where you cook the rations in the can and all this kind of stuff. I mean, they're obviously more expensive, but I was just looking for something of that era to like smell more than anything. I have a lot of um, books and I used to, I used to, get more books than I get now. I've kind of beaten that addiction. But, you know, you, we talk about comic books and things like that, and, you know, mad magazines from that era. Just the psychology of the, like, late 60s, early 70s, I just find really fascinating. And, you know, this is one of these things, these rations that obviously guys on, you know, going out in the paddy fields were, this was a break that they had. And it's all neatly portioned. I think there are three... Not sure how many cigarettes are up a packet, but you know, there's a small number of everything just designed for that. You know, we've just done something. Let's have a break and make a coffee and hopefully we won't get shelled basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. That's pretty cool. Uh, 
I wonder what that coffee smelled like. <laughs> I can send you. A, I can send you a pack in the sugars. I mean, I've got those left over in the milk and stuff. So I'll, I'll find one of my uh, one of my discarded ones and send you a parcel. Oh yeah, that would be awesome. I love smelling like um, old comic books. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. that's uh, that smells awesome. Yeah. <laughs> There's a thing about paper mold, which uh, now I live in the Bay Area. The Bay Area is really humid, or it used to be at least. It's gone back to being humid again. But these bookstores, when you go into the old bookstores. The many different smells of paper mold that exist there kind of create this rich like, nasal tapestry. You just open them up. And yeah. I, I think that's actually a large part of my addiction is the paper mold rather than the books themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I, I feel you. <laughs> so you had suggested a topic associated with ATAT drivers and how they become what? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love ATATs, man. <laughs> and uh you know we went and saw the new star wars and i, I hadn't been in the movies for a while mm-hmm. and the trailers were about an hour mm-hmm. and i said uh i said to my buddy who goes like weekly i said i'm ready to go if you want you know it was like it was like a really late show <laughs> he said yeah this is getting kind of ridiculous so so we stuck it out but i also I wanted to do is see the adats on the beach you know mm-hmm. and uh he looks over at me and i'm i'm sound asleep <laughs> no, it, it was is, like right it's unbelievably <laughs> It, I think you missed you missed the worst bits if you slept through it. Well, but, I only slept a few seconds, so okay. I said, "What did I miss?" I said, "I saw this, I saw this." So I think I just shut my eyes for a second because okay. I was I was tired. But I liked it. But um, I, I, that's uh, it's amazing. I fell asleep for the the one spot I was waiting for. But but yeah, <laughs> yeah. that whole beach sequence though, they get to a, a these are spoilers for folks that haven't yet seen Rogue One. Yeah, it's not yeah. worth. Yeah, but anyway, there's a database finding sequence where they go into, like, an old-school database while there's a beachfront, you know, battle scene going on. And that reminded me of Jurassic Park, the first Jurassic Park, where the <laughs> girl has to hack in. It's a Unix system. Yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> it's like, why would you juxtapose really bad nerd operating system-related stuff? Like, why is there, like, a database sequence where they have to find files in the middle of a battle scene? <laughs> just That's so funny. It's just insane. Um, <laughs> oh man, there's a scene like that in, in Running Man with Schwarzenegger. Oh, and yeah. uh yeah. <laughs> they got like put in this code but fight off the bad guys. Yeah. That's oh, so bad. Uh yeah. but yeah, uh I'm always curious about all the different like pilots and drivers and vehicle drivers and stuff like that. And I'm like how I, I worked at Frank's Nursery. Um, mm. I don't know if you have them out there, but you know, it's just a garden shop, uh, like like the size of Kmart. And so, I was I was young, you know, like right out of high school, and they kind of said to me, "Can you drive a forklift?" I said, "No." And they said, "Well, here, read read this paper." I was eating a sandwich on my yes. break. They said, "Read this paper and then go out and start moving moving pallets." And yeah. uh, so it was like I read a sheet of paper. Man, I ran over so many things, but it reminds me, like you know, how's how's an adat driver come to be? You know, what what test is it? Well, my <laughs> suspicion is, I mean, looking at the way that adats move. I'm not sure if you've been around like one to three day old puppies, like when <laughs> dogs first find their feet and try to move around. I mean, that's what ad hats are, right? They're like really like not able to walk properly yet robots with humans driving them in some crazy way. But they're always like they have. I mean, when you look at like the X-Wing fighter or you look at any of the Imperial like spaceships, that fly along by the ground, or even the land speeders. I mean, there are so many things in Star Wars where it's like, yes, that makes logical sense. Yeah. The ATAT is the worst possible mechanism. <laughs> I mean, what could the weakness of the ATATs be? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, this would fail any basic military analysis, but, like, they could look kind of cool, so let's just keep them, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's got no ability to go sideways. Yeah, it's like, the, it's like well, yeah, there's a whole movement to the like. The funny thing is, I Rogue One to me as the experience was somewhat traumatic. I saw it in Australia with my mother. Going to the cinema in Australia is completely different to going to the cinema in the US. But we pre-booked the tickets and we did all these kind of crazy things. And when we finally got into Rogue One, the seats were really bad. But in order to get into the cinema, we had to go, like, there were velvet ropes and all this kind of crazy stuff. Like, this is an experience. Like, you are going to the cinema. We are going to make this an experience as possible. And in the US, I mean, I don't know where it is where you are, 
you just walk into the cinema, you take your seat. There's probably a guy, you know, ripping tickets at the front. But there's no procedure associated with you're going down tunnels and into mazes and then coming up at velvet ropes. And the seats that we got, my mother had booked the tickets online. She was very excited about having done that. And the seats were horrible. So we got (laughs) into the cinema and we're like really close to the front. She thought we'd be really close to the back. And the air conditioning is just like billowing down. It was the middle of summer in Australia. So it was just like unpleasant in general. So I said, look, let me see if I can change the seats. It took me 25 minutes to actually get out of the cinema to a place where they had the food line. So in the US, obviously, they want to get you to the food line and get you into the cinema as fast as possible. More velvet ropes, more tunnels to nowhere. So it took me like 25 minutes to get out of the cinema and I just gave up. And then I had to work my way back in showing my credentials and doing all this kind of thing. And the thing that struck me when I got back and I sat down was theatre shootings. Theatre shootings in this country have optimised things immeasurably associated with getting in and getting out. And theatres were already easy to get into. But Australia, with all its, you know, we can't have anything like that and all these kind of things, the mechanisms associated with this film made it so unpleasant that I actually forgot there were attacks in the film. Now you're reminding me there were attacks in the film. I thought we were going to talk about The Empire Strikes Back. Which oh, is, that's what I was going to talk about. Ah, very good. Yes, that's because totally what I was going to talk the about. The Empire Strikes Back, to me, out of the three initial ones, before it all became crazy, Yeah, I think The Empire Strikes Back stands on its own. In fact, it's the only one of the trilogy that I own, because yeah. I think it's just a fascinating film, just independently of Jar Jar Binks and all the other crap that came on afterwards. <laughs> yeah, there's so many cool characters, man. It's yeah. like... Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I never was a – the newer ones, I, I don't know. They sort of lose me. Mm. Uh, I, I went to see – I don't even know the names of them. I want to say the Clone Wars with or Jenga Fett. Uh, I guess his, yeah, I went only because he looks like Boba Fett. Yeah. I didn't even really want to know who it was, but I said, well, this is as close as I'm going to get. <laughs> so I went and saw that. But the, the last one – what was the last one before Rogue, Rogue One? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, the that, last, that was that wasn't directed. That was okay. That wasn't directed by Lucas, right? So yeah, correct. That at least you got to see from a relatively young age. I used to be part of a film group that would go and watch these films. So I saw the early Lucas films back when he was doing westerns before he even did Star Wars. Okay. So I have a, like a clear understanding of Lucas's psychology, independent of the Star Wars franchise. It was always really hacky. So when it came up to Star Wars, he had a budget and a few ideas, and he just struck it lucky. I mean, you're going to hit gold eventually. And he just hit gold with regards to this particular film. So I've always found his directorial like influence associated with the movies really very curious, which is why, as you note, the last one that came out before Rogue One, that neither of us, I can, neither of us can remember the name <laughs> to, was actually fascinating because it was like a non-Lucas molested. Like, it was the first one, then Rogue One came out, which was... When, when, uh, when I, so I, I go with the same guy who, 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 who's big in the movies. He sort of gets me out of the house mm-hmm. and says, you know, like, all right, come on, let's go see it. Let's go see it. Let's go see it. And so, so finally we go and I see it in the middle of the afternoon. And, uh, I, I said, oh, this, this Kylo Ren guy, I was like, it's a cool character. I, I can get this action figure. And then he takes his mask off and it's Gilligan from Gilligan's Island. And I, I looked over to him. I said, you, you gotta be kidding me. This, it's done. Let's go home. I said, I can't even look at this guy. <laughs> Yeah, so that killed it for me. But I like the movie, but um, just not Gilligan. And I said I'd love to have a a digital copy so I could maybe kind of like um go into After Effects and and put put the mask back on him for those scenes and, and mute out his talking. Alas, <laughs> alas. But the attack drivers in the snow. I mean, the notion of the attack drivers in the first experience of them in Empire, yeah. Empire Strikes Back. You having the notes how they become one. What is that specifically with reference to there? Just, um, I was thinking about taking the driver's test back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I had, my parents would make us take it in these enormous cars. That was sort of like their way of protecting us. So they, they would, like, my first car was a, this old 79 Cadillac, uh, Coupe de Ville. 
Mm. <laughs> and it was just so hard to turn and park and everything. But you figured it out. And I said, geez, that thing was huge. I mean, I can't even imagine driving like an 18-wheeler for a test, let alone an, an AT-AT, you know. And uh, I just, I don't know. It's, it's, I just was thinking like, is there like an imperial training course? There's got to be. I mean, yes. <laughs> where, do they, where do they learn to run these things? You know? Well, I mean, you, you kind of get the sense that like these outposts, which I guess the the snow covered planet is that's the kind of place where they'd send people to learn how to pilot the atats right right these are clearly guys that have not they're not like starfighter level they're the kind of guys that basically no one wants to go to the frozen tundra but mysteriously the guys end up there and they have to learn how to drive the atat through that experience <laughs> It's, it's it's so funny i like that like you see an empire like it it goes to step a couple times and it kind of like doesn't know where to step and it's like yes. i want to say it's paul kind of like goes forward and goes back and it's like this is this huge this huge thing that's supposed to be so awesome and it looks so clumsy all the yeah. time but i mean part of it is the animation as well i mean part of it is the time i actually went back and watched empire strikes back maybe half maybe a year ago maybe half a year ago just to see like plot wise what it was like there was a documentary called um i am your father which i think is on netflix which is the story of the guy who plays darth vader and the fact that he was edited out of all the like if they didn't use his voice his big thing was when they took the mask off and revealed his face and they used another actor <laughs> and it was always like asserted that he was leaking stuff to the media that basically all the major leaks had come through him, even though it turned out to not to be the case. And the, the guys, the journalists that leaked stuff indicated very clearly that he wasn't the guy. So there was a like hidden battle within the Star Wars franchise between the guy who plays Darth Vader, who was only recruited because of his immense size and physical presence, not because of his voice. His voice is kind of, well, it's not Darth Vader's voice, basically. So yeah, it's a fascinating documentary. I think that got me back and thinking like, What's the best Star Wars movie? Ah, uh, The Empire Strikes Back. That's yeah, what is be the one? What's What's second for you? Second is difficult. You see, what's interesting is my wife has also turned forty last year as well, and she and I share a lot of the same experiences as you and I have. Kind of curiously, you know, Masters of the Universe, these kind of things associated with how we were born. She remembers all the Ewok movies. Do you remember the Ewok movies? Like after the Empire, after Return of the Jedi. There was like the Caravan of Colorage, Return to Endor, any yeah. os- any possibility <laughs> to get Ewoks in things was I just can't. there. Yeah, my f- I don't know. I always felt I couldn't stand the Ewoks, mm. I, so I never. I like the Jawas, but I, the mm. Ewoks I kind of thought were too muppety for me, I guess. Mm. And I like the Muppets, but mm. but they I, I never liked them. They were too cute, I guess. Mm. Uh, so. I think for me. Personally, and I had in our potential topics, caravan aficionado. As you are a boardwalk aficionado, I am a caravan aficionado. But the caravans that I've stayed in have always been like in remote locations in like jungle, like rainforest and things like that. Or, you know. Oh, really? And the thing I like about that whole sequence is I, I mean, growing up in Australia, I love to get out of the cities and just go to these remote places. And just, you know, walk for a few days and find a caravan in the middle of nowhere, these kind of things. So for me, I understood where the Ewoks were coming from. I understood that whole, like, gotta get out of the cities, gotta like, and I also really like the, the weaponry and things that they use. Like, it seemed to be a very civilized way, elaborate armor and laser guns and things like that. No, just crush them with tree trunks. You know? <laughs> tree yeah. trunks still squish stuff you know yeah so i don't know i mean for me the ewoks so if you say what's the next one well probably probably what they call a new hope now what i call star wars the first one but then again like the ewok movies were just so curious in their own thing and also <laughs> i really i mean i live in northern california now the redwoods, this whole environment, I really like getting out into that kind of environment. So I don't know. I mean, the thing about Return of the Jedi was it had its elements. It had its interesting things. Obviously, Jabba the Hutt is like the comedic character potential in so many different directions. But I don't know. I think 
probably Empire Strikes Back, the original Star Wars, and then Return of the Jedi. But I, I don't know. I mean, it pretty, it's a pretty close tie between those, between the original Star Wars and Return of the Jedi for me. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's, yeah, I'm the, I'm the same order. It's, it's close. I mean, I, I love those stormtroopers in Return mm. of the Jedi and all those chase scenes in the forest and everything. You know, there's, there is a ton of cool stuff in that one, but it probably is New Hope. Probably edges it out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I do like the weaponry of the Ewoks. I will say that it is cool. I like the, uh, you know, it's sort of like when, uh, the predators getting <laughs> smashed exactly. by logs, you know, I'm exactly. like, yeah, I, I, I like that. Yeah, I do yes. like that. <laughs> yeah, that was the seminal film. All those Schwarzenegger films for me were really like seminal films, the Predator in particular, but also the Terminator series. I mean, these are films that really defined like large parts of my life, particularly associated with programming and artificial intelligence and this kind of stuff, because I'm always really fascinated by the notion that regular people with regular jobs create the Terminator. It's not, they're not evil people. They're just kind of tinkering away and they create the Terminator through this process. And I've, I've been, I developed an open source project for more than 20 years now called Noble Ape. And part of that in, I don't know, the early 2000s, the Iranian military started downloading my Noble Ape source code. Noble Ape is about monkeys that survive on, well, originally an island, but now a, a planet environment. And they go around. It's, it's basically artificial intelligence in a rich environment. There's an AI component to it because obviously the apes have to survive in the environment and learn from it. So when the Iranian military started downloading my noble ape source code, I thought they are making Terminator robots out of my source code. <laughs> that is what's happening. The US military clearly not interested, but the Iranian military understands open source, can learn from environment, deal with urban areas as well as jungle areas. You know, this is what they're doing. And I'm just waiting for the like the Iranian Terminators to swim ashore with programmed by noble ape kind of burnt into their side of their heads so they come for us on the you know but uh yeah so i'm I'm very mindful of all these kind of things as they layer into uh you know the psyche <laughs> that's wonderful i love it uh, so another topic that you had done was scratch and sniff stickers oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> do you still collect scratch and sniff stickers Nah, do they still make them? My wife had a collection that she gave to some neighbor kids a while back. We went through this whole kind of we've got to get rid of all this old stuff. And as you noted, associated with the Masters of the Universe figures, the scratch and sniff stickers, I mean, if they're coated on either side and haven't been opened, still have the smell. So I don't know if they still make them like they used to. But I know that if people have existing scratch and sniff stickers that have been stored in relatively ideal conditions, you can still scratch them and smell them. Yeah, I still have mine from when I was a kid. I have probably like four books worth. I mean, they're all stuck on the pages Mm. and they've just been in a box, but they still smell. I mean, they, you know, the the little gasoline car thing still smells like gas. It's amazing. Mm. (laughs) The grape is so good. Oh, man. Yes. You don't live yeah. in a state where cannabis has been decriminalized yet, do you? You don't live in a medical cannabis state, or do you? I don't even know. I live in Pennsylvania. I don't think Pennsylvania has yet. The thing yeah, about California so. is that all they now make weed in scratch and sniff flavors. You, you missed this. <laughs> but basically, the commercialization of cannabis here has made... So if you go to rock concerts, or if you go... My wife used to follow the Grateful Dead, so we went to a Grateful Dead show. And then a few weekends later... We went to Ice-T, the rapper Ice-T, had oh, yeah. a thing called The Art of Rap, where he had 20 rap musicians play, rap bands play. So we went to that as well. And the difference in the weed that was smoked at the Grateful Dead show versus the the Art of Rap was amazing. The Art of Rap, as you say, great, you know, cola, um, like blueberries, bananas, citrus fruit, mangoes watermelon was lit up at some stage all this weed smells like scratch and stiff stickers now (laughs) and they actually grow it specifically for these various smells that's so funny they don't care about like potency or anything like that it's about as you say the strange child i mean obviously the the naysayers will say ah but you know they're clearly growing this weed for children 
Well, actually, they're growing this weed for adults that still have childlike minds associated with these things. But yeah, the whole <laughs> weed market now is based on like all these different like aromas, which have basically come from scratch and stiff snickers. The one aroma, however, that they haven't found, and I think this is the holy grail, is bacon. When they create bacon-flavoured cannabis, that will be like the holy grail associated with all these flavours and various other things. <laughs> and I think the time will come where bacon-flavoured cannabis will exist, but it doesn't. It, apparently it's not out yet. I've, I've <laughs> put the feelers out. I've asked a few people. I've put it out in a few podcasts, and no one's come back to me yet. I haven't received a box at work that smells like bacon just yet. <laughs> but it could happen. They need to play like an audio track of the sizzling sound yeah. if it's a concert. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think the, the way to survey the latest weed is to go to rap concerts. That's the only way to survey it. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, that's where it's... The, the Grateful Dead was interesting. It was all like sandalwood and, you know, this kind of stuff. But yeah, the rap shows, man, the flavors, the aromas that were coming out of that crowd. Unbelievable. Unbelievable stuff. <laughs> when was that concert? Uh, it would have been last year. It would have been probably June of last year. And it was okay. amazing. I mean, I, I know you like rap as well. Slick Rick. Oh, I really? Prison was there. They had EPMD. Uh, they had, um, oh, who else did they have? They had Bizarre. They had a bunch of early rappers as well, like Molly Moll and, um, Oh man. Oh, um, oh, the guy who was, uh, arrested for, or was at, uh, Africa Bambada. You're never going to oh, see an really? Africa Bambada concert ever again. <laughs> that was the last time you will ever see Africa Bambada on stage. It was oh, astonishing. And so they tried, actually, it was, a, it was more than a year ago because they tried to do it last year and they couldn't get it. It was Public Enemy and a few other folk. And I would have gone to that one as well, but unfortunately they didn't come to Northern California and they couldn't get it. Anyway, they had to cancel after. I don't know what's happened to Ice T. He spends too much time on Law and Order and not enough time being a rapper anymore. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. But uh, yeah, no, it was an amazing. And obviously, Ice T. So they had Bone Thugs and Harmony, and then they had Ice T perform. Yeah, I was there just for Ice T. I mean, my perspective is Ice T just as a character. He did a podcast for a period of time. In fact, he did a podcast that was a gaming podcast called Final Level, and it's really? fascinating stuff. But they only recorded probably 16 recordings. And then, obviously, well, he then did a TV gig, and then, obviously, he's got Law and Order in parallel. But, yeah, I could, I mean, just listening to his podcast, for me, Ice-T is the original gangster album. I mean, the earlier stuff with Black and Decker and all the other kinds of stuff, and, I mean, all the sex rhymes and this kind of stuff was all outlandish. But original gangster, for me, was just, like, the seminal Ice-T album. And, I don't know, he performed... The problem is that the... The amphitheater that he performed at, they have, uh, they can't play after 11.30 at night. So, you know, boys to men, not boys to men, but it's a bone tugs and harmony. They might as well have been boys to men. Did their whole thing, you know, meet us at the crossroads, this kind of stuff. And I was just waiting for iced tea. T truth be told, EPMD was amazing. You know, there were a bunch of amazing groups there. I mean, Bismarck Key was there. Bunch of people. I mean, it was like 21 acts. So it was pretty packed. How was Marley Morrow? Marley Marl was interesting. He's really fit. The one guy, oh, whose name I can't remember, who everyone references as being like a really good MC who never had any commercial success, but he's the origin of Rapper's Delight. He did the, oh, uh, what is it? What is it? But anyway, he was the guy who gave the original lyrics to Rapper's Delight, who was cut out by, by the big guy who passed away recently. His stuff was unbelievable. And he did modern stuff as well. They had the alcoholics there, obviously. They had, um, what's the fellow's name? He did Pimp My Ride. Exhibit. Exhibit oh, yeah. was there independently oh, yeah, like from the alcoholics. King T was great. I rebought a series of King T albums based on King T being there. Because <laughs> it was just like ridiculous as, as always. But yeah, I, I was there to see Ice T. The thing was that there was an Ice T concert when I was about 18 that I wanted to get to. It was Ice T and I think Public Enemy. And everyone in my hometown in Australia went, even like the 60 year old Jewish woman who knew my mother went because the kids <laughs> bought her a ticket and said you've got to come to this thing and that was berserk it was in a like a university bar area it was a university bar where the rating of the concert was based on how much violence was done at the concert so for example <laughs> when nirvana played there they blew out the windows within the first song like people were just it was just a riot 
<laughs> when Ice-T and Public Enemy played there, it was a riot, but they waited till the very end. And Ice-T actually came out and did a DJ set at the very end. And that's when the place just collapsed in riot style. <laughs> that's awesome. But yeah, it was amazing. So I missed that concert, much to my chagrin. I mean, to have a 60-year-old Jewish woman tell you about a concert that is so completely like seminal in your consciousness that you should have been there, but I wasn't for some reason, probably studying for an exam or some nonsense. <laughs> so I had to see Ice-T. I really want to see Public Enemy as well, but they don't have Terminator X anymore. So my view is, I mean, the new guy that they have is nice, but he's not Terminator X. So nah. Yeah. I, I just, you know. He, he does some interesting stuff. He does, an, he does an interesting, speaking of Nirvana, he does an interesting Teen Spirit set that I've seen online. Really? But, yeah, if it's... He, that song, I DJ'd many, 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 many years ago. And there were a few songs that I really loved to DJ. I used to do like Beatles interlude mixing and stuff like that. So for example, if you know Ice Cube, he had an album called Kill It Will. Yeah. There's a song called Jacking for Beats. You could do Jacking for Beats and Strawberry Fields. They're roughly the same tempo and you can cut between them and do all kinds of blending. We, we were talking about something leading into this. Yeah, how you missed the concert. How I missed the concert, the Ice T concert. Yeah, yeah. So I had to, I had to see that, and I, I'd go and see Public Enemy again. But yeah, yeah, that's pretty wild. I can't believe all those guys still go out. Yeah, they still tour. Well, it's interesting actually because Ice T, Ice T brought them all together, and he did a lot of promotion through his podcast as well to get people out, and I, he pulled a lot of strings. I mean. Slick Rick is old. Like, Slick Rick did not yeah. do prison time well. He is... It's interesting because he was out with Dougie Fresh as well. Speaking of names. Oh, uh, yeah. And Dougie Fresh is youthful. He's dancing around. He's doing all this stuff. Slick Rick basically is like James Brown towards the end of his career, where he literally kind of limps on stage and then limps off stage. He had a hard prison time, quite clearly. And a lot of these people... I mean, we talk about um, Africa Bambada. A lot of these people you won't see anymore. So I felt very lucky to actually have a chance to see all these guys. And, you know, to see them in such a show, yeah, it was just phenomenal. Yeah, that's pretty wild. I can't believe all those names. It's funny because Ice-T seems like he's, uh, you know, got a full plate. Yeah, I think, I mean, the interesting thing with the podcast is he did gaming for a long period of time. He had, like, a well-known gaming crew... He did variety of like game magazines, interviews and things like that. His history is fascinating. I mean, he was in the military. Well, his friends, if you believe his story, robbed jewelry. Well, he was an orphan for a start. Let's get to the point. And then his friends robbed jewelry stores. I think he's loosely affiliated with the Crips. And then he went in the military in order to avoid all of that stuff. And he got out of the military. I think he was a, was he, he was a ranger in the US military. He got out of the military and he had all this weapons training and stuff and his buddies were still robbing jewellery stores. <laughs> so he got back into that briefly and then he went and spent time in a nightclub in LA and just realised that he already lived the rapper lifestyle. He just needed to start recording music. His first track that he recorded, I think it's called Frozen or Ice Cold or something like that. And it's basically 80s electro with him rapping over it. But yeah, it's interesting, interesting kind of times in this. I have on our notes Easy E or something to talk about. And since we've kind of digressed out of scratch and stiff stickers and into <laughs> rap. Yeah, I'll back it there. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about Easy E? Ah, uh, Easy E's got like one of the best voices, you know. The, just, the sound of his voice is so good. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm big on, you know, like I said, I'm big on when action figures keep their masks on <laughs> and I'm big on like any musical act, not just rap, but it's gotta be, you know, you can have, you can have an awesome song, but if the vocals suck, it's like, ah, uh, it kills it. And, and, and not just what they're saying, the sound of the voice, you know, but I love Easy's voice, man. I mean, my, I, I had a friend and we would walk home from school together and we'd, we'd each have our headphones on. Yeah, I remember one day he was like, here, let's trade headphones. And I would always have like Tom Petty, the police, stuff like this, mm -hmm. you know, and I listened to rap, but I never listened to NWA mm -hmm. and um, or like two life crew. I, mm -hmm. I never had any of it. And he, I never would go and buy like the latest record. He had a paper route, so he would mm -hmm. just. He would buy those those hockey cards and he would buy like what well, was tapes then, you know, it was just getting the CDs. And uh, I would be like, man, you, can you spend like 15, 20 dollars on a tape, dude? That's like 
I gotta, I gotta save my lunch money every day just to get a Nintendo game at the end of the month, you know? So we switched and he had, uh, NWA and I was mm. like, ah, who, who, who is this? I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> and, uh, he let me listen to two life crew, but I never really got into them. But, um, once I heard easy, that was it, man. I was like, th- this is hysterical, you know? And they got a lot of like, uh, comedic stuff too. Oh yeah. Just, just their lot. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's just I'm like, God, they do like such cool stuff and then such funny stuff. I'm like, it's it's like the best. But his voice is is so awesome. I mean, I just always like that. And it's funny, like uh, straight out of Compton when that came out, I was like, mm. oh, I, I can't wait to see that, you know. And I'm mm. like, man, this should get like the, the best picture award. I'm like, it was so good. And um, we're like best original screenplay. I'm like, yes. it's it's a real story. And the guy, like, you never see a like like a movie like that and made by the guys who lived it. I'm like, mm. ah, it's so cool that they did that, you know. And, mm. Um, but uh, I was like, ah, oh, man, this, this is so awesome. But back then, you know, without the internet, I re- he would, my friend Jim, he would just tell me, <laughs> he would tell me like what was going on, and he would say, you know, like Ice Cube left the band because of this reason, yes. and these guys don't like this guy because of this, and when you know, like in finding out all the real reasons, it's hysterical to see to to. To go back and hear what all the rumors were, you know, it was like the rap oh, media guy- at the time was just fascinating. I mean, they, <laughs> they had more magazines in that genre, but I mean, I, I guess we're then talking about the early nineties. For me, NWA, I got straight out of Compton, and I, I was besmirching my uncles who used to get me socks for Christmas. This was the best Christmas gift I ever received from an uncle. He had just bought NWA straight out of Compton. And also Public Enemy's Fear of a Black Planet. And he made double cassettes for me. And you've got to appreciate, in Australia, there is nothing like NWA. There's nothing culturally <laughs> like Public Enemy. This is, this to me, as the Terminator and, you know, Predator were seminal films, this to me changed my total perspective. There were the computer games that I made prior to Straight Out of Compton. And there were the computer games after Straight Out of Compton. The ones after Straight Out of Compton, Schmuck Quest, you know, these kind of things still have a following online. And the <laughs> seminal thing about Straight Out of Compton was just that it was so raw. Nothing before had really had that resonance. And as a kid, particularly in a kid in Australia, but a kid anywhere, I can imagine, you felt like a repressed person, like you were being repressed by a society we hadn't had a chance to talk about schools, but my view of schools is they were just to educate me associated with what prison would look like. I really disliked all <laughs> the things that were in front of me. And to get this music, which so distilled a raw emotion and the use of language in particular and just the portrait it painted. Now, I got that in 1990, so it was a bit old by that point. But in 90, maybe I can't recall, 1990 also was the year that I went to LA for the first time. So it was a similar year to get that album and then go to LA and experience, as you say, Ice Cube leaving the group, America's Most Wanted, the album came out. And it's very difficult to describe. I've got a black cousin. She's like my fourth or fifth cousin. But we've started communicating through, we found we had shared DNA. And she asked me what it was like when the album Straight Out of Compton came out. Just like how it completely changed everything in an, like listening to it. The production, I mean, I listened to prior to that, I listened to things like Tone Loke. Tone Loke had a producer who was a white guy who was actually a very well known producer. And the stuff in Tone Loke is very well, like coordinated. It's very, like, well produced. Straight Out of Compton had a real raw element to it. The samples that they used were not as tight as other things. And it had a roughness, which obviously Public Enemy is the origin of. I mean, they the, the the sound that Public Enemy produced in the early albums, obviously, Fear of Black Planet's kind of the centre. Afterwards, they started to drop off. But that whole raw production sound I'd never heard previously. So to get those two albums, the language, the ideas, the metaphor, the darkness, there's hope in there as well. Through all this darkness, they're standing up to the authority in a very, I don't know, it was just very receptive to me at the time. And as you say, to be past that, and then the story and obviously Easy dying of AIDS, 
I remember the year he died of AIDS, 95, uh, just in college. I was in the kitchen. We had to do forced work, so I was in the kitchen washing dishes at the back. And the local hick radio station in Australia was like, do you want music like this? And they played a bit of Easy e Or do you want music like this? And it was like crappy Australian rock music. I thought, this really distinguishes the thing, right? I want music yeah. like Easy e I don't want music <laughs> like Australian music. I just got to get my ass out of this country and go and be a gangster like Easy e yeah, it's uh even their videos were cool because yeah. it looked like it looked like they just took an old camera and shot it, you know. But LA at the time, there were parts of LA that really, and there's still a parts of LA that are like that. I mean, that whole grit of LA. I my wife is from LA, or she will never say that. She says she's from Brea, but she'll never go back. When we were looking at places to live in the US when we were in the UK, moving back, I wanted to go to LA because I love that grit that LA has. My wife's not down with it, so we are where we are. But that's, that, that aesthetic is still in L.A. You could still drive around parts of L.A. and have exactly that aesthetic. So cool. So funny. Yeah, that was, uh, man, some of their albums were awesome. Yeah. Well, the 100 Miles of Running video, that's an aesthetic video as well. I mean, that's exactly the same kind of areas in L.A. that they did with Straight Out of Compton, but just yeah. in an extended form. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and what's your first um what's your first rap album? Can oh, you remember? Probably I think it was probably Tone Loke. Yeah, I, okay. I the message I had the message earlier, but it was the first Tone Loke album. I still love the interpolation that he does of band in the run and cutting rhythms. I mean that to me is like the quintessential example. I think that's probably what I was trying to talk about when we started talking about DJ. That was the quintessential like DJ breakdown where he takes something and just completely rips it apart. Obviously, he's not doing it, his producer's doing it. But yeah, that was probably the first album that I had. I had. It was through that whole, what was it called, hip house period as well. And my uncle was also into that, so I had various hip house things, which now apparently are like really important musically. I have a co-worker who occasionally plays that stuff by accident and that whole thing. But I never really liked that. I was more interested in the raw aspect. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> oh just, man yeah i guess turntables djing and all these kind of things i mean when i was in la we were opposite rhino records which people still talk about they do occasional two decades three decades of rhino records and they had back sales and i bought i don't know maybe 10 records that were like the central part of my djing early on and they're not bands that anyone's ever heard of there's a band called seriously fine that again was produced by molly Mole. And no one's ever heard of them, but I used to use that in, you know, my early DJing. There was a group called Too Deep, not N Too Deep, but Too Deep. They had some really cheesy, they were kind of Fast Prince of Bel-Air, kind of um, Jazzy Jeff ripoffs. But they had a track called Simply Done, which was a beat played backwards, which obviously the Beastie Boys used as well, with just like seven of their friends rapping over a beat. And I've always liked those records where they get... um are you familiar with, there was a group called The Odd Squad from, they were on the South Rap-A-Lot. And they nah. came out in 19, they had a song called, had, uh, the album was called Sure Enough. Uh, uh, anyway, but the Devin the Dude, who is again is like a, he toured with Dre and a few other folk for a period of time. But that was fascinating. They had a blind production guy called, I can't think of what the guy's called. But anyway, I'm I'm far more interested in like the DJing production element to it, which means that I, you know, purchased a lot of rap that most people wouldn't have. But the benefit of this is that I've got a large record collection still. Um, oh, and occasionally man. people say, well, you know, do you have this or do you have that? A lot of it, when I used to DJ, particularly when I used to do recording like work, um, mainly on tape, but then CD. You wear through records very quickly if you're scratching them heavily. Uh, and I was constantly replacing, you know, styluses, needles, and these kind of things as well. So a lot of my record collection is really heavily chewed up through that. Plus, if you DJ in nightclubs, you never, you have like a stack of records. And if you're DJing and actually like mixing and stuff, you put records on top of records and they get scratched up and messed up. So, yeah. Yeah. The first time I tried to scratch a record, just like really like one of the only times, but my brother had a Fat Boys record, and I was like, ah, oh, 
let, let's try to scratch some records <laughs> with some of like mom and dad's old vinyl. And so I had this little turntable and I just remember I took the arm or whatever it is and just, I thought you, you rub that back and forth over the mm-hmm. record. And my brother just looked at me like, you idiots. <laughs> because he had to ruin the needle. The easiest <laughs> way to damage not only the needle, but also the record. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I destroyed that record. But I was like, oh, man. But yeah, uh, we had Fat Boys. Was My brother had a Fat Boys album. And then somebody gave me Raising Hell from mm-hmm. Run DMC. Uh, yes, yes. But the first thing I can remember going buying was cool g rap road to the riches oh yeah I yeah I, that's he's probably my favorite i yeah, constantly he's... would study rap like i probably started djing heavily in 91 i'd say but i every time they would put rap videos up i would spend extra care like all the old epmd stuff they're always concentrating on the dj's hands because implicitly you don't know how that stuff is done and yeah. I watched a documentary, I think, with Grandmaster Flash, where he explained it very slowly. He now does it. He has a completely different narrative now associated with how he learned to DJ. So all the stuff that he did in the late 80s, early 90s, he now has a much more metered story associated with how he did it. Cypress Hill's insane in the brain. That video where Muggs actually lifts the record up with his fingers under the record in order to twist it. That was yeah. a technique that I picked up. Um, and you could do much faster scratches that way. Like your, the texture on your hands, you can actually use like your whole arm in that circumstance. And I used to use that quite a bit, but it's a funny skill because it's like riding a bike. I mean, I haven't DJed. I bought a turntable a couple of years ago and it was just too, I mean, they don't make techniques anymore. And I used to actually buy turntables and like fix them up, but I bought a turntable on eBay. It was just like the wrong thing to do. <laughs> but I had a, I had a Gemini, I think, in the UK, and that was wonderful. I could do everything I needed with it. But you need a very... I mean, what I used to use also, I still have my slip mat. My slip mat is right in front of me, in fact. I had a the school um, blazer. Our school kept changing its name and its lo- logo as they amassed more and more schools. So I had the original blazer, which was the perfect slip mat, because it just had <laughs> enough texture in the top, and I just cut it into a record thing. Um <laughs> Yeah. The, they originally had a Latin thing, Nunc Tempus de Deste, which means now is the time to destroy. They got the Latin wrong for learn and destroy. But none of them spoke Latin, so they just had now is the time to destroy on everything in Latin. So, yeah, that was the one that I used, basically. <laughs> That's pretty good. We need to talk next recording. Because, I mean, the whole psychology associated with school is one thing that I really wanted to talk to you about. Because I, we're running out of time, unfortunately, in this one. But, like, nihilism and the whole means of dealing with, like, education. And also adults losing their shit. Like, this was a large part of my childhood. Was just <laughs> observing adults losing their shit. And just thinking to myself, I'm going to become one of those people eventually. But I've just got to study these people so I never become, like, one of those people exactly. <laughs> Uh, the AV department wheeling those projectors in and out. <laughs> yeah. So okay. I think we've we've covered almost everything. We've stuck to the hour as requested. Do you want to send us off with a final topic? Is there anything you want to throw out there? Or are you good for next week? Or just if if we're calling Some... it quits now for next week? Yeah. I don't, no, I don't have anything off the top of my head. I've been mm. thinking a lot about Merman, the mm. He-Man figure. Yeah. And. uh the various forms they draw him in and how he, yeah, I don't know. I could go on and on and on, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll cut it at that. We'll save it for next time. We probably need to start thinking of a name and these kind of things as well, more practical things. Uh, we'll Did explore it in a variety of different ways. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, well, it's been wonderful. A pleasure as always, Brandon. Let's do this next week. Talk to Sounds you. good, Tom. Take care. Yeah. Cheers.